0: This podcast is sponsored by our B Corp friends, a group of businesses dedicated to social and environmental change while making a buck. One of these legends is Dr Bronner's, a family of soap makers dating way back to 1858. With pioneering certified organic ingredients, fair trade practices worldwide and socially responsible workplace policies, they wear their B Corp badge proudly. We love all the essential oils they use in their home and body products. After a Dumbo Feather launch event, there is nothing quite like having a foot soak with Dr Bronner's peppermint soap. Make it part of your self-care ritual and buy better, buy B.
1: Hi there. And welcome to another episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast. A monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. I'm Lizzie from Dumbo Feather and this month on the podcast we're hearing from our dear friend, Hugh McKay. Hugh has been examining how we live for six decades so he's got some pretty great insights into what makes a good life. In this episode, a lecture recorded for the School of Life He shares his knowledge about how we can become a more compassionate and less anxious society by working within our local neighbourhoods and communities. Hugh says that rather than staring into a mirror to find our identity, we need to look into the faces of those who surround us. It's a heartwarming episode that might just give you the courage to go knock on your neighbour's door and invite them round for a cuppa.
2: Good evening, everybody. Uh, I wonder if any of you have been overseas recently, in the last year or two. Would you put your hand up if you? Ah, it's a much-travelled audience. Uh, I wonder if you can remember what you said when you got home. Possibly something like, why would anyone ever want to live anywhere but here? <laughs> Best country in the world. Uh, we all say that when we get home, don't we? It's not always acknowledged that that's precisely what Belgians say when they get home (laughs) from travelling abroad, and it's what Nicaraguans say. It's what Danes say, Canadians, even New Zealanders say. (laughs) Uh, Why would you ever want to live anywhere else? Uh, So the pull of home, the place where we were born or the place we've adopted as our homeland, is very strong wherever it happens to be. But of course, in the the case of Australia, there is a big difference. We can tell you why Australia is the best country in the world. Uh, We might even want to claim that here we have created the good society. Um, Let me me remind you, if you need reminding, of the very common themes that are mentioned when we brag about Australian society. Some of us like to say we have a robust parliamentary democracy. Uh, Well, how how proud of it are we? 75% of Australians, in a a survey last year, 75% of Australians expressed disillusionment with federal politics. Only 39% of Australians think our parliamentary democracy is the best system there is. Institutions in general, are having a rather rough time in terms of public respect and esteem and even trust. What will we say about the churches? What do we say about the mass media? Big business. The Edelman Global Survey of Attitudes to Big Business uh, last year showed a drop all around the world in esteem for big business, but the largest drop uh, by far was in Australia. Uh, The trade unions, professional sport, wherever you look, there's this problem of declining uh, trust, declining respect for institutions. Uh, What about the land of the fair go? We like saying that about Australia. Many of you might feel uh, that Australia has given you a fair go. You wouldn't say that, of course, if you were an asylum seeker who'd come by boat. You wouldn't say it if you were an Indigenous Australian. You wouldn't say it if you were a woman struggling uh, to obtain true equality, especially in your workplace. And you certainly wouldn't say it if you now find yourself on the wrong side of the growing uh, income inequality gap in Australia, a gap unprecedented in its dimensions because we have an unprecedented number of rich and poor Australians, roughly two million Australians, including 800,000 kids, are now living in poverty. Well what about our education system? We like to say we're a well-educated population and that's one of, the mar- one of the hallmarks of a good society and we are a well-educated population by world standards. Certainly now we have more Australians, particularly young Australians, in university education than ever in our history and many of those universities are world-class institutions but not when you look at our school education system. UNICEF recently ranked the school education systems, the performance of the school education uh, systems in the 41 most affluent countries on earth. We're in that group. And we ranked 39th out of 41. Uh, And I should pause to say, by the way, I am a staunch patriot. Uh, but what, and I'm sure you're patriots too, but what a feeble, pathetic kind of patriotism it would be if we couldn't face some rather challenging facts about the kind of society we really are. We know that we are over-medicated, we're overweight, uh, we're deeply in debt with a record level of household debt, Uh, The Adelaide Institute of Sleep Research tells us we're sleep-deprived. We have the highest rate of sexual assault in the world. I mean, there are lots of things about us we have to confront. Um, But but enough of all this. Let's let's abandon the ledger of why we're terrific and why we're not uh, and come to the central theme of what I want to discuss with you tonight. And the central theme involves presenting you with two of what I regard as the most significant facts about contemporary Australia. The first is that we, and by the way, this is not uniquely Australian. We have this in common with most of the Western societies that we would normally compare ourselves with. But we in Australia, like that, like those countries, are in the grip of a mental health crisis. Beyond Blue tells us that last year, Two million Australians were suffering from diagnosable anxiety disorders and another two to three million were suffering from other forms of mental illness, including depression. It's no exaggeration to say that there is an epidemic of anxiety in Australia. Uh, It's silent and invisible, of course. If it were an illness that had a physical manifestation, we'd be very conscious of the fact that At any given moment, two million Australians are suffering from it, but we don't see it uh, and we don't always understand uh, that it's a phenomenon and that all of us, to some extent, may be complicit in, in that epidemic, and I'll explain why I say that in a moment. The darkest shadow cast by the epidemic of mental illness is, of course, suicide. The youth suicide rate has been coming down over the last 10 years, which is good news but the national overall rate has been steadily going up, which, of course, is bad news, between 65 and 70,000 Australians attempt suicide every year. That's a very, very... That's the size of a regional city like Albury. Uh, 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 65 to 70,000 of us deciding we've had enough in any given year. Uh, that surely is a central and significant or or a a symptom of a central and significant fact about us. The second uh, significant fact that I want to present is that we have become a more socially fragmented society than ever in our history. And I need to justify that, but it's very easy to justify. And in fact, if we just had a couple of minutes to debate it, we'd come up with a pretty comprehensive list of the factors that have driven the trend towards increased social fragmentation. Let me just very quickly remind you of some of the obvious ones. Our households are shrinking. Um, um, We used to live in human herds. We don't live in human herds now. The average Australian household contains 2.5 people. The fastest-growing household type in Australia is the single-person household, already accounting for every fourth household and the ABS tells us within the next 15 years it'll be every third household containing just one person. Now, many of you live alone, and, and some of you, at least, I'm sure, would want to say, well, being alone doesn't equal being lonely. Uh, but, of course, being alone does increase the risk of being lonely and feeling socially isolated. Some people see their solo household status As a symbol of freedom and independence, you can whistle out of tune and watch daytime television and eat baked beans out of a can and no one's going to criticise you. And if if you want uh, to connect with friends, you know where to find them. But many people living alone don't feel like that. They're living alone involuntarily because of a relationship breakdown or a bereavement or some other circumstance that has forced them, uh, not necessarily permanently, but at least for a time into being solo householders. So the risk is increased in any society. Again, we're not alone. The single-person household is the fastest-growing household type around the West. Between 35 and 40% of contemporary marriages are ending in divorce. That's obviously disruptive and has a fragmenting effect, not only on the couples, who were a couple and now are singles, Um, but also on their families, on their friendship circles, on the communities that they've moved into and out of as a result of that process. And, of course, if kids are involved, uh, the the disruptive effects are potentially uh, very serious. Um, Statistically, we've reached the point where a million dependent kids now live with just one of their natural parents, and half of them, half a million kids, are involved in a weekly or fortnightly mass migration from the home of the custodial parent to the home of the other parent for an access visit. The falling birth rate uh, contributes to social fragmentation. In this way, any of you who are parents will know that if if you move into a new neighbourhood, into a new area, it's usually the kids that get to know each other first. They act as a sort of social lubricant. They meet in the street or on the school bus or in the playground and then gradually, or at sport, and gradually the families get to know each other uh, via the kids. Well, we're now, relative to total population, producing the smallest generation of children Australia has ever produced, with a birth rate of around 1.7 babies per woman, well below the replacement rate of 2.5, and about half... The birth rate during the post war baby boom, when it was 3.6 babies per woman. Uh, we're, co- we're compensating, of course. We realise perhaps that the loss of that social lubricant has to be uh, compensated for. The most popular compensation is reflected in the dramatic rise in pet ownership. Um, and, and you can be in no doubt that many of these pets are child substitutes because of the names they're given. Uh, <laughs> I recently met a dog called Ian. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad it struck you as funny. It certainly struck me as funny. Uh, and, and, of course, the problem from then on is you can't remember whether Ian is the dog or the owner. Uh, I don't know why it's so odd. I mean, I know a Harry. That doesn't seem so odd. Um, uh, a Louis. A uh, Louis following the royal precedent someone recently called their, my acquaintance called their dog Louis. we're fragmented by our own busyness. Have you noticed how busyness has been enshrined now as a virtue? Uh, who here would dare admit that they're not busy? Uh, it's even changed the way, ah, well done. Uh, it's even changed the way we greet each other. We say, how are you going, all right, busy? as though, are you dead or are you busy? <laughs> uh, uh, if, I don't know if there are any retired people in the audience. You may have parents who've retired and you and you will have learned that it's absolutely de rigueur for retired people to say, I'm so busy, I don't know how I ever had time to go to work. <laughs> Why is this a virtue? But increased busyness, it, it's true, of course, the two-income household is now the middle-class norm in Australia. We are busier. Um, uh, I heard some people recently talking about how their working week now starts on Sunday afternoon when they go to their laptops and get ready for the week uh, by checking all the emails they didn't attend to last week. Um, Well, if we're going to be this busy, we're not going to have the time or the energy for maintaining and nurturing uh, contacts and connections in local neighbourhoods and communities. Then, of course, there's the information technology revolution. Uh, I don't think I have to say anything about the socially fragmenting effect of the IT revolution. For all its wonders, it's brilliant, it's convenient, we all use it. Um, but of course it's paradoxical. While it appears to connect us more than ever before, it's made it easier than ever before to stay apart from each other. I'll, I'll stop the, the the list there. But the cumulative effect, of course, is that... Uh, local neighborhoods, local communities have become less stable, less cohesive than they once were, threatening our sense of comfort and security and threatening our feelings of trust towards the people that we live among. Uh, It's also, of course, fueled the rise of rampant individualism. The me culture uh, emerges inevitably in any society it becomes more socially fragmented. Well, now, I said at the beginning that I was going to present you with two central significant facts about contemporary Australia, uh, an epidemic of anxiety in particular, mental illness in general, and increasing social fragmentation. But I'm sure many of you have already jumped to the conclusion that these are not two facts at all. Uh, This is one fact. These are two sides of one coin. Heads, we become more socially fragmented. Tails, our anxiety level will inevitably go up. Now, I accept that there are many causes of anxiety in individual cases. Some people will say, well, I'm anxious because of job insecurity, or rent stress, or relationship breakdown, or loss of faith, or because of my addiction to IT devices, or whatever it might be, and and that's true. There are all those factors in individual cases, but when you're looking at an epidemic, when you're looking at two million in any year suffering just from anxiety, leaving aside other forms of mental illness, we have to look beyond those specific triggers at the societal movements that have been taking place that have promoted anxiety on such a large scale. And here's where it seems to me the culprit is very obviously social fragmentation for the very obvious reason that we, by our very nature, are social beings. We're herd animals. We're tribal creatures. We absolutely need each other. We love to congregate. We need communities to nurture us and sustain us and protect us. It often seems as though the most interesting thing about you and me is the difference between us. But actually, the most significant thing about us is our common humanity. What, what is similar between us is far more significant than what is different uh, between us. We are communitarians. It's in our DNA uh, to cooperate, to be part of uh, functioning communities. Even our sense of identity depends on that. There's a lot of nonsense talked about personal identity at the moment as though you could somehow find your personal identity by looking in the mirror, or by gazing at your navel, or rushing off on a weekend retreat to find yourself. Save your money. Don't ever go on a weekend (laughs) retreat to find yourself, because that's not where you are. Uh, If you want to find yourself, look into the faces of the people who love you. Look into the faces of your colleagues. Look into the faces of your neighbors. Look into the faces of people who need you. That's who you are. Your identity is meaningless without some kind of social context. How do we... What's the worst punishment we can inflict on prisoners in our criminal justice system? Solitary confinement. Because to be cut off from the herd, if you're a herd animal is the worst form of punishment there. I'm not, of course, suggesting that we all have to be together all the time. Even sheep occasionally wander off and graze on their own. Uh, we do need solitude. We do need some privacy. We do need uh, time to uh, recharge our batteries, replenish our resources for the very demanding business of being a social animal and fulfilling our obligations to the species that we belong to. So knowing all that, it seems to me we should regard our epidemic of anxiety as not just a symptom, but a sort of clanging alarm, reminding us that something has gone wrong with the way we are living as a society to produce this effect in so many people. Uh, A prominent American psychologist at last year's annual convention of the American Psychological Association, and by the way, her remarks have been echoed here and in in Western Europe as well, Uh, she was on record as saying, social isolation is a greater threat to public health than obesity. Social isolation, a greater threat to public health than obesity. So the tragedy of contemporary Australian life is that We are not always living as if we need each other, though we do. We're not always living as if our personal health, including our mental and emotional health, depends upon the health of the communities and especially the neighbourhoods that we belong to, though it does. And another tragic aspect of our situation is that when we are gripped by anxiety, Uh, we tend to look in all the wrong places for the solution. Uh, We look, for example, for strategies that will give us a greater sense of control, a greater sense of certainty. Well, who who in their life ever had a sense of control or certainty? Life isn't like that. But the flight to fundamentalism in religion, in gender politics, in food fads, in environmentalism, people looking for simplistic black-and-white certainty that will they hope get their anxiety level down uh, our obsession with security whether it's border security or bars on the window and three locks on the front door uh, is an attempt to allay our feelings of anxiety consumerism buy more stuff uh, this will this will make you feel better just just keep just keep buying stuff uh, get the kick of retail therapy and get that outdoor sink into the barbecue area. That seems to be the latest um, uh, strategy. If you've got an outdoor sink in your barbecue area, you're a cutting-edge consumer. Uh, And if you haven't, then may I urge you to keep up. It's time. Nostalgia is another favourite strategy. Let's, Let's Let's wallow in how it used to be. Let's remember how life was when I was a kid. Wasn't that wonderful? And might have been wonderful. And there might be things we can learn from what life was like uh, when I was a kid. And maybe we can bring some of that into the present. But we can't go back. And we all know that. Now, all of those things are not mocking those responses. They're natural responses uh, to feelings of anxiety. But they're totally missing the point. And they're totally missing the connection between our anxiety and our societal problem of increased fragmentation. I think the correct solution, uh, the thing that actually does convert us not just into a good society but into a great society, can be captured in one word, and it's a very old-fashioned word, compassion. Uh, I'm not talking, when I'm talking about compassion, I'm not talking about an emotional state, by the way. I'm not talking about something that's the province of do-gooders and bleeding hearts. Uh, I'm not talking about feelings of affection for other people. I'm talking about the only rational response to a full realization of what it means to be human. I'm talking about a cool mental discipline that any of us can adopt, and indeed any of us, in my view, should adopt, once we realise that our common humanity is the most significant thing about us, that we're all in this thing together, that you are part of me and I am part of you, and therefore, the only appropriate way, the only rational way for us to treat each other, especially those we don't like, especially those we don't agree with, is kindly and with respect and compassion. That's what I mean when I talk about compassion. It's the breakthrough strategy for solving the problem of anxiety and social fragmentation all at once. For the the individual, compassion is the great antidote to anxiety because it shifts the focus away from me onto people who need me. It's very easy, isn't it, to complain about the state of the nation and even to mock ourselves when we learn things like we are about to become the fattest nation on Earth, overtaking America, or all the other things that I said at the beginning. It's easy to mock the state of politics and say, what's, what's going wrong? Some recent research uh, showed that when you ask Australians how they feel about their own future, they're pretty positive. They're typically optimistic when you ask them how they feel about Australia's future, they are typically pessimistic. What a terrible disconnect that so many people think they're doing all right, but the country isn't. So there's a lot of hand-wringing goes on about uh, what's wrong with the country. Uh, Not so easy, perhaps, to embrace the idea that the state of the nation that matters, the state of the society as opposed to the economy, actually starts in the street where you live. The state of the nation is the accumulated state of all the neighbourhoods that we populate. When it comes to the character and the values of our society, it really is up to us. We all know how to act like neighbours when there's an emergency, when there's a crisis, a fire, a flood, a storm, a trauma of some kind. We rush to each other's aid because that's what neighbours do. What a tragedy it would be if we reserved our neighbourly behaviour for crises and traumas like that, and failed to acknowledge that our role as neighbour is to nurture the life of the neighbourhood. If you think people aren't as friendly as they used to be, you, you know how to solve it. So what kind of good society am I imagining for Australia? Certainly in the new book I talk about ways we might do politics differently, we might do gender differently, we might do business differently, we might do religion differently, we might do education differently. But above all, I'm imagining a place where compassion becomes our defining characteristic, where kindness and respect are taken for granted as the way to treat each other, especially those we disagree with. It seems to me that if enough of us start living as if we are that kind of society, that's the kind of society we will become. Thank you.
1: tuning in to listen to this episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast. And thank you to Hugh and the School of Life for letting us share these wonderful words with our podcast community. We've included a link to Hugh's latest book, Australia Reimagined, in our show notes. This edited conversation was produced by Beth Gibson, and the music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for our next conversation, or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. And for more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide.
0: This podcast is sponsored by our B Corp friends at Hub Australia. Dumbo Feather is passionate about building an economy where people find purpose and meaning in their work. That's what makes Hub Australia so great. They provide inspiring, state-of-the-art co-working spaces with top-rate amenities that help you focus on doing what you love, your work. Hub Australia is more than your usual office space. They're a diverse community of motivated businesses. Find out where your closest hub location is and more at DumboFeather.com forward slash buy better by B.